Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. All right, welcome everyone. Today, in continuation of the ongoing series on homesteading, we'll take a bit of a turn into a different way of doing things. Up until now, I've mostly spoken to people who have created homesteads with their families and are supporting themselves at the home scale. Today, we'll consider what it looks like to scale things up to what it looks like homesteading at a community level and what it takes to produce high quality food for say 100 people or more in an intentional community setting. As if that weren't challenging enough, what does it take to continue to produce an abundance of food through the winter in a cold climate? Now in this first half of the interview, I spoke with Pam Dawling, the author of The Year Round Hoop House, about the most important information about siting, building, and irrigating, and soil care for extending crop growth in hoop houses. I get to tap into Pam's extensive knowledge of feeding over 100 people at the Twin Oaks Intentional Community in Virginia, mostly from her 30-foot by 100-foot hoop house and the details of that particular setup. And in the second half of this interview, we turn to a topic that so many of you listeners have written to me about, and that's communal living. These days, there's a renewed interest in eco-villages, intentional communities, and various configurations of communities like that. Many of you who've been listening for a while know that I've been fascinated by these dynamics and community configurations for a long time too. Pam gives great insights about her personal motivations for moving to a community living situation, as well as the decision-making structure and many other dynamics that have kept Twin Oaks together since its creation in 1967. Though we recorded this interview a while ago, there's a lot of relevant information to the current world pandemic situation in that we talk a lot about resiliency and security inherent to land-based and semi-autonomous living. One of the great parts about this interview is that listeners of this show will have the opportunity to win a free copy of Pam's book, The Year-Round Hoop House. And here's how it works. Just leave a review of the Abundant Edge podcast on iTunes and take a screenshot of your review. Send it to info at AbundantEdge.com along with the address where you'd like to receive your mail, and I'll send the book to the first person I receive an email from. If you live outside the U.S. or Canada, you can just send the email, and we'll send you a digital copy. And if you don't win this time, don't worry. I'll be giving away a ton more books from New Society Publishers this season, so stay tuned each week for your chance to win more books. Now, if you've already left a review on iTunes, you can share this episode on your preferred social media platform, take a screenshot, and send an email just the same. These steps really help us to reach a larger audience with this information and message of actionable steps that anyone can take towards ecological restoration. So I really appreciate all of you who've been helping me to get the word out. I'll be looking forward to your emails and sending those books out soon. Now, before we get started, I want to send a quick message of solidarity to all of you around the world who've been affected by the coronavirus outbreak and economic impact of the response. As I'm recording this, we're in the second day of a nationwide quarantine here in Spain, where all but essential services and businesses are closed for a two-week minimum in order to halt the infection rates. Now more than ever, we have an opportunity to rethink the way our communities and lifestyles are configured 
and how they interact with the environments immediately around us and around the world. In times like these, it's impossible not to see how every part of the planet is connected and how all of our actions, habits, lifestyles, and consumption affect everyone else more directly than ever. To prevent tragedies like this from becoming the new norm, we urgently need to restore our damaged environments and work to create earthwide resilience by regenerating the foundations of our food chains in the form of soil and water resources from which all other life is derived. We must find a way to create societies and cultures based on the care and creation of life in all of its forms, not just our own. This unfortunate epidemic can serve as a positive event if it becomes the wake-up call that inspires massive action on a global scale to completely reinvent the way our economies are structured from those based on resource extraction to those based on resource creation and stewardship. Many of us who have benefited from the sequestration of wealth from around the world to afford us our comfort and relative abundance, including myself, have the choice to use this privilege to lift other people and other forms of life up, even though it means we compromise our own comfort and ease of living. On a more personal note, I truly hope that this message finds all of you in good health and in good company. We need each other, we need community, and you're not in this alone. If any of you feel like reaching out through the comments on the website or by email, I would love to hear what you find inspiring and uplifting in these difficult times. With that said, I'll hand things over now to Pam. Hey, Pam, thank you so much for making time to be with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Hey, it's my pleasure. Now, I've been looking forward, you know, we've tried to do this a couple of times, but you haven't got a stable connection at the uh, intentional community where you live. So we've got this organized while you're giving some presentations at a conference. Isn't that right? That's right. Yes. Carolina Farm Stewardship Association. Oh, that's exciting. But now look, so I've got a ton of questions specific to your book on hoop house design and, and, and working, but I'm also really curious to know more about sort of the dynamic of the intentional community where you live. So what do you say we just jump into the questions? Sure, go ahead. Perfect. So why don't we start by talking a little bit about your background, your personal background in farming and such, and how you came to live at the Twin Oaks Intentional Community. Okay. So um, I was born in London in the UK. And uh, when I was at university, I started hearing about intentional communities and organic farming. And I used to go on weekends with um, Woof, which over there was working weekends on organic farms. And uh, so I learned a little bit. I read a lot. And then I also uh, traveled around various communities there and joined one, helped start one. And um, the one I helped start was based on one in, in Virginia in the U.S., which is Twin Oaks Community. And I always liked the sound of it. Uh, it's a big group of people, uh, rural intentional community that is egalitarian and secular. And I always thought, oh, that sounds like just what I'm looking for. But uh, I thought we would build it in the UK, but we didn't manage to get the kind of numbers I was hoping for. And uh, after living in several communities, I thought I would visit Twin Oaks and see if I really liked living with that many people and living in a different country, which was a big deal for me, leaving my friends. Um, but it's all worked out and I've been here 28 years now. And I've still got my friends in the UK, so I can go see them from time to time. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. You kind of managed to balance the best of both worlds. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. I mean, it's a long way and I can't afford to go very often, but uh, 
uh, yeah, I've still got very good friends there, and that's the important bit. Yeah, definitely. So now you profile. Let's let's you know focusing now on on the book that you wrote. You profile quite a few different hoop house designs, and we won't go over all of them because it'll take a little while. But let, by starting by the beginning here, which of these designs do you advocate for, and and why? Um, well, I advocate. First of all, for getting the biggest hoop house you have space for that you can reasonably use. Um, it's typically said when you get one hoop house, you're going to want another one. So choose a spot that is big enough for another one later or get one that's bigger than you think you're initially going to need. And um, I'm, I really advocate for the Gothic arch shape rather than the sort of half round Quonset style um, because you get taller sidewalls which make for easier work and you've got their extra height in the roof space which gives better air quality um, and so I, I think that that's good it's also much better shape for shedding snow and for coping with strong winds so mm. first of all I would say go with the gothic arch shape uh, then I would say get two layers of plastic um, and inflate the space between them. If you can possibly get a little, little bit of electricity uh, out to the site where you, ha you have your hoop house because the extra air gap in that space between the two layers of plastic adds some thermal insulation at night. Otherwise, you've effectively got a plastic bag between you and the outer space at night. So it's not going to keep much warmth at night in the winter if you've only got one layer. But two layers keeps quite a bit, sort of eight Fahrenheit degrees. I think uh, that's kind of close to five Celsius. Yeah, um, yeah. So two layers of plastic is good. And also the, uh, the air gap and, and the pressure of that gives extra strength against strong winds and against heavy buildup of snow. So definitely two layers, I would. Um, other than that, uh, there are minor things like whether the sidewalls open up at all or whether they open upwards or downwards <laughs> and that seems a lesser thing to me uh, we went with non-opening sides because we mostly were interested in winter crops and we didn't want drafty leaks all over the place um, and it, we haven't regretted that even though we do use our hoop house all the way through the summer in Virginia um, but uh, if I was doing opening sides I would go with the, the drop down the wind down kind that you can leave halfway open and then you've still got a bit of protection at ground level for small young plants. So that's mm. another thing to consider. Yeah, that makes sense. Tell me yeah, a little bit sure. about why you would want to get the largest one you can in the beginning or, or why people often <laughs> want to once they get started. Is it just because uh, they underestimate yeah. the size or? No, no, it's just because it's just so wonderful um, growing crops in a hoop house. It's so productive, uh, so much more so than outside, and the crops are in much nicer condition. They don't get weather beaten, uh, so any leafy crops look really beautiful um, and, are, and grow big and, and productive. Um, so that's one part, and another part is that it's just... In the winter, it's so nice to work in there compared to the other kinds of season extension that you can do outdoors. 
you know, you can do row covers and hold it down against the winter winds with bags of rocks and sticks and all sorts of things. Uh, sure. But if you've got a hoop house, you just open the door and walk in. And, and if it's sunny, you take off your hat and your coat and your gloves and your scarf and you can walk around in there and, and garden like you're in a different climate. Well, you are in a different climate temporarily. Mm. Um, it's just so it's so wonderful that um, you start to have more and more ideas. You know, oh, I could grow uh, strawberries. Oh, I could grow dwarf cherry trees. Oh, I could grow early asparagus. You know, you can think of many more things that you can do if you had more space undercover. Yeah. What about the price of, of installation of a hoop house of like the one that you've recommended with the double lining of plastic? And um, what's the size that you recommend again? Well, ours is um, 30 feet by 96 feet, and we're feeding 100 people out of that. So um, it, it's one of those things where a bigger size of hoop house actually works better than a tiny one. A tiny one, hmm. it's hard to keep stable conditions. So it's, um, it's good to have a bigger one. I mean, obviously, if you're just growing for a family of four, you don't want an ginormous one um although you can always store things in there if you really don't want to grow stuff in the whole place you can use it to store things and keep them from the weather outside yeah i mean i've even heard of people bringing their chickens in for the winter and running them within the hoop houses and that keeps them productive for longer because they don't have such a lag in production due to the cold oh yes i've heard of that yes or using half or one end of a hoop house for chickens right. yeah I haven't and tried even that. And even harvesting all of the, the mulch and the, the manure after the end of the season, too. Right, right, yeah. I think if you're organically certified, you'd have some problems with the regulations and running chickens around in there. But uh, Sure, it depends on where your regulations are, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it does, yeah. yeah. What about materials for the sturdiness of the hoop house? Or is it more of a, just a matter of choosing which pack or setup that you buy? Or have you fabricated any from, from materials that you have available? Uh, we bought the frames uh, when we bought ours, which was uh, 2003. Uh, it was kind of the beginning of the wave of hoop houses. And uh, suppliers weren't all there with kits. They weren't kits as such. You could buy you know, this many hoops and this many purlins and, and an instruction booklet that was written by someone who'd never, ever used one. And so it was a bit more <laughs> chancy. <laughs> sure. But things have improved since those days. <laughs> uh, so I would really recommend uh, galvanized steel tubing. Uh, some people make hoop houses out of PVC piping, but it's not very strong. I don't recommend it. It won't last as long. I mean, steel tubing is going to last you practically forever mm. unless you get a tornado or something. Um, but the PVC piping is just not worth the risk. And also the PVC and the polyethylene uh, covering interact badly where they touch. So it, it's, you're going to have to change your plastic outside layer, you know, plastic layers sooner. So don't go with the PVC. Get strong uh, galvanized steel. And um, the sort of size that ours is isn't the kind that you can bend yourself. You need it to buy it already shaped. It's well worth it. Because as I say, it's going to last you forever. So you may as well invest at the beginning. It's very yeah, yeah, worthwhile. Yeah. And so how much was the cost of that setup initially for the, for the one that you have? 
Right, back then, 2003, um, we had a budget of $5,000 uh, US and we included, um, we actually included a few tools and the first round of seeds um, to plant it up. Hmm. So it was reasonable. I mean, I think you could pay a lot more. Ours is not the most strong model. If I was, if I was buying now and I had enough money, I would definitely go with one that had bracing for the end walls especially on the windy end the direction the wind comes from and i would definitely choose one that had um trusses across um crossways ours doesn't have that it has the the tubing of the bows and then it has lengthwise purlins but that's not it i mean it's still standing i i mean i say it's not the strongest but it's been standing all this time and we have had some strong winds but i just think if you're starting out it's worth getting the, the strongest one you can afford. Yeah, especially if it's going to be sort of a longer term investment, like you're mentioning. I love getting advice like that from people who've used them for a good long period of time and looking back, kind of talk about, oh, what they maybe would do differently or what they would yeah. advise other people. That's always really useful. So with that in mind, um, tell me about some of the things to consider when citing a hoop house. So you have all the materials. What is important to think about when you're choosing the, the spot for it? Uh, well, you want somewhere relatively flat. Um, ideally, you want a slope of a foot and a hundred feet from end to end, so that if any rain, if you get heavy rains and they wash in, they'll also flow out. Sure. Uh, you definitely you need good sun exposure. So this is in the winter is a good time of year to to walk around with some flags or stakes of some kind and and look at possible sites. Um, this is what. What we did, we walked around, it was close to the winter solstice and we walked around with flags and we said, oh, we could put it here, we could put it there. You want to make sure there aren't any uh, trees that will, or buildings um, that will provide too much shade. So you want a long, open south side um, that isn't going to get shaded. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter so much if it's a bit shaded in the summer, um, but you, you don't really want... Uh, conifers for instance or buildings that are going to stop the sun getting in in the winter because that's what you're really relying on the sun provides the heat as well as the um, power for the plants to photosynthesize and does it matter terribly kind of the quality of the soil or the drainability of the soil when you first cite it or is that kind of considered mm. something that you can amend later on um good question you can definitely you can improve any soil yeah uh you can also like you could start before you put your hoop house up if you figured out where you want it yeah i mean it's nice of course it's you want to have the best possible soil but i think that that's a lesser that's something you can change whereas the amount of sunlight that you get is harder to change we did have to cut down some trees after we put ours up when we realized that three o'clock in the afternoon they started shading and so we had to cut some trees down so it's better to um work with the soil than to have to work with the shade. Naturally. Yeah. Well, so you also mentioned this double plastic layer system, and I really only found out about this when I was reading your book. And then there's actually a fan mechanism that blows air in and keeps the two layers separate and forms sort of an insulative layer that has a significant difference, like you said, about eight degrees Fahrenheit um, of difference from outdoor and indoor temperature. Can you tell me a little bit about how that works, kind of where you would source that material and how you, how you might put that together? It's relatively easy these days to find the plastic. Um, it, you must get UV inhibited 
plastic that's sold for greenhouses and hoop houses, high tunnels. Um, the regular old construction plastic will fall apart into horrible little pieces in a matter of months. So don't yeah. take that shortcut. <laughs> mm. So get the get the UV inhibited plastic. It's also quite stretchy. Um, so it's resistant to some holes poking in it. Um, it it's going to cost a lot in the shipping. So if you've got somewhere nearby that you can get this from, that is better than getting it shipped a long way. Mm. Um, the the blower to put the air in, uh, it doesn't use much electricity, uh, but that is actually another factor in choosing a site that I didn't mention. You're going to need water and you're almost certainly going to need electricity. So uh, you probably don't want to put your hoop house miles and miles away from those utilities. So that's another factor about answering the earlier question. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the blowers, um, yeah, they don't use much electricity. They're kind of like, a, I think, a squirrel cage blower. You um, fasten them, you know, to a board on the end wall of the hoop house so that the air that comes in is coming from outdoors. And then there's a plastic tubing that you fasten to the inner plastic layer over the roof of the hoop house. And so that lets the air out into the gap, the space between the inner plastic and the outer plastic. Otherwise, if you take the air, if you have the air intake coming from in, indoors in the hoop house, it will be far too steamy and humid and you'll get too much uh, moisture droplets in the gap and then the um, the air quality. Yeah, no, that's an important tip. <laughs> you get them starting to yeah. stick together, and I can imagine mold would start to build up in there. That's not good. Oh, it'd be awful. Yeah, so don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> and so this is really more important for places with very major swings in the temperature. And I mean, that's probably the main motivation for putting up a hoop house in the first place. Now, I recently just moved to an area very close to Barcelona in Spain. And I mean, the, the summers are are quite hot but the winters are quite mild and though i'm definitely considering putting up a hoop house for um kind of larger production throughout the winter i can't mm. imagine that i would need that much of an insulative layer have you had any experience working with people with kind of more temperate winters or moderate winters and how do you sort of adjust the design based on the temperature swings throughout the seasons yeah, um, having the two layers does help to sort of moderate the the temperature swings. Um, during the summer, we actually put a great big sheet of shade cloth over the top of mm. our whole hoop house, and then we carry on growing things in there during the summer. We leave the doors and windows wide open all summer, but we have the shade cloth over the top, and that moderates the temperatures which would otherwise be too hot and having the double layer plastic moderates the temperatures which would be too cold. Um, what some people do in colder places is they make inner tunnels with wire hoops over the beds in the hoop house and mm, then put yeah, some that. kind of row cover fabric. But that that is more work than just having that second layer of plastic over the top already in place that you don't have to do anything with. Um, so I don't, I don't really know. Uh, I've also seen people rolling up the plastic layer around the, the sides as well so that it's fully ventilated from all angles. Have you ever done that for right. yourself in the summer or is it just it's not that much of an issue? We haven't got op opening side walls. You could do. Um, and, and some people even have fully opening, the whole end wall opens up. 
uh, like if they use a tractor in there, we don't do that. Um, but you can make the whole end wall hinge upward somehow or open yeah, that side makes to sense. side. Yeah. But in the summer so with the shade cloth, do you have a, mm. a, a significant dip in the amount of photosynthesis going on? Or is it really just uh, moderating the temperature and the plants still grow just fine? Um, we use It's 50% shade, uh, which is a little bit darker than ideal, I think, for vegetables. I think 45 would be better. I don't think, it, I mean, we have, you know, long, longish summer days, long number of hours of daylight. Um, I don't think it hinders them. I'm trying to think if there's been anything that we've grown that hasn't hasn't done well because of the light and I'm not coming up with anything really. <laughs> That's actually really good for me because though our our weather patterns are quite different, I think Virginia and where I'm at in Spain are at a very similar latitude. So Oh right. With yeah. Yeah, with 38 north. I think so. I, I don't have the yeah. exact number off the top of my head. Right. But looking at it on a map, it's about the same. Um, okay. Yeah. So yeah, so the sun pattern in the in the winter and the summer would be about the same. But is it a matter of just switching production in in a lot of places just to outdoors in the summer, and you kind of focus more of the production in the winter in the hoop house, or you really just you use it primarily all all throughout the year? We do use it all year. We kind of found that we have three seasons in there we have the the winter and early spring crops which are mostly greens leafy greens but also radishes and turnips and uh, salad onions scallions um, and then we go for early tomatoes and peppers and squash and cucumbers and we get those earlier than we could get outside uh, and then i mean lots of people would keep those things all summer if they could but we we don't we have pests and diseases and we move on to outdoor crops of of those those mm. things which do just fine in our climate and so what we do summer is sometimes um a legume cover crop like some kind of peas or beans uh, or a seed crop of those um we have done them to harvest but to eat fresh but we decided um, we didn't really want to spend the time in there harvesting when it was hot. <laughs> so it was we, we found we could do seed crops, and that was a really good use of the space mm. in the summer because the seed beans and peas uh, have very high quality. The pods don't get the fungal diseases that they could get outside, and so they're very clean, and the, the peas and beans are good size, and um, we get good germination rates. And so we were selling seed crops out of there, and that worked well. Um, what are some of the other ones yeah, that you've particularly had success with, especially when it comes to extending the season into the colder times? Uh, in the colder times, um, we do a lot of um, Asian greens and kale and spinach and lettuce in, going into the winter. We transplant most of those in there or direct sow them, some of them. Um, so we're harvesting all our winter salads from there. And... Uh, also the Asian greens for cooking later on and the kale for cooking later on, some spinach. They grow much faster than they do outdoors. And so we're able to harvest them more often and get more from the plants. So it feels that it is very productive. Indeed, yeah, that's, that's um, crucial. Yeah, yeah. And then when we get to the spring, we're transplanting those early 
uh, squash and cucumbers and tomatoes and peppers like a month before we would dare plant them outside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, it's quite a lot of difference. It makes a lot of difference. Is there any period during the dead of winter that you're really not growing much at all, or is it really productive all the way through? It is productive all the way through. I know the earlier books about hoop house growing were mostly written in colder climates than ours, and they talk about having like an outdoor larder that your pantry, that your crops are not growing in the winter. But in Virginia, they are still growing, and we can harvest all winter. Yeah, one year, uh, this doesn't usually happen to us in Virginia but one year we had a whole month when we had either snow on the ground or um, ice on the frozen soil and we couldn't harvest outdoors and we kept 100 people in salads and cooking greens for a month in the middle of the winter from that one hoop house just fine. Wow well, we that did is it. remarkable. Yeah fairly remarkable it was looking a bit worked over by the end but <laughs> it was very worth having yeah. Yeah for sure that's your lifeline in those months huh? Yeah, yeah. And quite a few of those crops, like kale and spinach and lettuce, can all grow whenever it's above 40 Fahrenheit. And that happens a lot in the hoop house, whereas it doesn't happen so much of the time outdoors, even with row covers. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I know one of the things that I didn't know before I read your book was how salt can build up in the soil in a hoop house. I hadn't heard of that before. And how can right. someone kind of prevent this issue? How does it sort of occur to begin with? Yeah, we were really unaware of this at first. And it took a, we were giving a tour to some experienced growers from all over the place. And one of them said, what do you do about the salt buildup? And I just kind of looked blank. <laughs> but now I know. Um, so it happens because it doesn't rain in there. We're using drip irrigation and the water drips into the soil and goes down deep to where the roots are to um, provide for the plants. And meanwhile, it's warm in there, so water is evaporating from the surface of the soil. And so the water is getting pulled up through the soil and evaporating, and that leaves the salt on the surface. I mean, if you, if you set about, I was going to say growing your own salt, um, you know, getting some seawater and making some salt, you would evaporate off the water. And essentially that's what's happening at a slower rate in a hoop house. And so it's building up near the surface. And um, what we do is twice a year, we try and wash the salts deep back down uh, into the soil profile again, where they came from. And uh, so we do overhead watering with a sprinkler for two hours at each spot and then we repeat it the next day and we're doing that we're doing it right now actually this time of year and then again uh in early march before we've got any of those um more tender crops in there the the greens are not so upset by having water on the leaves but watering on the leaves of the tender crops is not such a good idea in our climate because of the fungal foliar diseases ah uh, sure so it really is that necessary twice a, a season or twice a year, I suppose, um, that kind of heavy watering. And do you have sort of an apparatus that, that you do that with? Or is it a matter of just bringing in hoses and... and right, our apparatus, is, it's a lawn sprinkler. <laughs> it's <laughs> one of those oscillating lawn sprinklers that does a kind of rectangular shape. And that works, uh, okay. you know, it's yep. good enough. So, I know another grower who um, would hand water 
or all winter instead of using the drip irrigation. So they would use a hose and a wand to hand water everything all winter. But I think that takes quite a lot of time. Um, it does, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not in favor of that. <laughs> so like you said, you've got drip irrigation running throughout the entire hoop house. Are there any other alternatives that you would recommend for different circumstances? Or is that really the way that you found works best? certainly works best for us. Um, I hadn't known very much about drip irrigation when we started out, but uh, once you've got it set up, it, it's there so long as you don't punch a hole in it by accident and then you just fix it. Uh, so you can get a timer so you just set the water running and it turns itself off. So that's very easy. Uh, we do have to, of course, when we sow a row of something or we transplant something, we do have to hand water immediately so that the the water goes exactly where the seeds or the plants are but once they get some size to them they can draw water from under the surface of the soil where the drip puts it mm. um, but some other growers do have overhead water they have sprinklers that are suspended from the roof and they water that way have you found any difference like um, either benefit or or I guess uh, kind of a risk at wetting too much of the leaves. Like you said, in your yeah. case, there's the issue of getting fungal growth or, or perhaps other yeah. maladies. Is that the main yeah. reason why you've chosen the drip irrigation? It's the main reason, but it's also true that drip irrigation saves water. It uses a lot less mm. water than uh, sprinklers do. And uh, you're only watering the rows where the plants are. You're not watering where the weed seeds might be. And so uh, you don't get weeds. And that's why there isn't a chapter in my book about what to do about weeds, because we don't really have them. So long as we don't bring in weed seeds from outside, uh, we're not getting any new weed seed, any new weeds germinating in there. Sure, it's not really blowing around. You haven't got birds depositing things or too many insects coming in from outside, I'd imagine. No, I think they stay in there. We've got a lot of insects, but I think they like it in, in there. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Now, what about the layout for planting inside the hoop house? Do you have any specific recommendations for that, or is it just a matter of trying to maximize the space that you have inside? Uh, well, it is a matter of personal choice. Uh, we wanted maximum growing area, and so we were prepared to have fairly minimal space for standing and walking. And so we've gone with um, lengthwise raised beds and they're four feet wide, which is the space, the size that we're used to from our outdoor gardens where we have raised beds and part of the garden. So we have five four foot wide beds and then in the long edges, the edge beds are only two feet wide. And then our paths are just one foot wide, which is, for people with small feet, it's just wide enough to stand with your shoes crossways, but people with bigger feet have to turn their feet. Um, so it's minimal, and we have to sort of be fairly flexible people. So you can have much wider paths and uh, places that are uh, more, like have tours of people coming around or school groups or um, people with less physical mobility need wider paths than that for sure. Um, but it's worked, it's worked for us, and uh, we're certainly cranking out the vegetables, so we're happy with it. Mm. And what kind of fertility plan have you worked into the hoop house? Is it much different from your strategy outdoors? Do you find that there's really, like, it changes that much, the fertility plan between those, those microclimates that you've created? 
Well, we use our homemade compost, which is very good. And uh, we put a, a generous layer on in the fall when we're preparing the beds for the winter crops. And we are more generous than we are outside. Uh, and then when we come to transplanting the warm weather crops, we dig a hole and we put a shovel full of compost in each hole. Um, we've, the, that's really the main source of fertility in there, although we do try hard to sort of remove as less the least organic matter that we can because, you know, what with the high production rate of crops in there and the high temperature and the high humidity, you can really burn up the organic matter very fast in there. So you need to pay attention to replenishing it. So mm. we try to leave the, the bits of the plants that we're not going to eat. We leave those on the surface of the soil as long as we can and hope that they're going to break down. We've even sometimes moved them from one bed to another so they get a bit more time to break down. But when it gets to be huge amounts of stuff, we have to haul it out to the compost pile. Yeah, that um, makes sense. We do do soil tests. Yeah, we do soil tests once a year uh, to see everything's still in balance. And so far, so good. And so it sounds to me like you're practicing a no-dig method? Yes, right. Yeah, that was part of what we decided. We don't do no-till, no no-dig anywhere else, really. But uh, we decided we wanted to try that in the hoop house. We didn't want to bring the rototiller in. We didn't want those uh, internal combustion engine fumes for us or our food. <laughs> so we just uh, uh, went with manual work. And as I said, there's not much weeds, so that's not a lot of work. But we do broad fork once a year. We found that our, uh, um, the soil does kind of settle and, and get a bit compacted, even mm. without stepping on those beds. So once a year we do broad forking, which is a big kind of, u-shaped frame with big prongs on and you stand on the cross piece and jump up and down a bit and, and step <laughs> off and, and loosen the soil that way it's a bit yeah. energetic <laughs> everyone that i've interviewed that advocates for no dig methods still swears by the broad fork method yeah 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 actually i just went to a no-till workshop at this conference but they're not using broad forks there's a much bigger scale they're doing no-till cover crops and outdoors ah, okay. planting. Yeah, yeah. for broad so that's a very planting. yeah that's a very interesting system but it doesn't it doesn't fit inside our hoop house <laughs> no i can't imagine so it's like uh seed drilling more in that case perhaps yeah and transplanting yeah 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 all right well how about we switch gears for a second because I feel like we've covered most of the meat of what you go through in the book about growing things in hoop houses. And it really does seem like this is a very productive way for you to maximize the, the seasons where you are, given that, you know, there's a whole otherwise dead period throughout the long winters in Virginia. But let's talk now about some of the dynamics in the intentional community. And this has been something that's increasingly important to me because people who've listened to this podcast for a while know that I until recently was living in, I guess you could almost call it an intentional community, but it was just a, an endeavor among a couple of friends of mine uh, in Guatemala. And we started up a small farm and an education business there and through so, some difficulties in communication and, and differences in vision moving forward, um, I'm here in Spain now. So um, right. tell me a little bit, cause like you were talking about trying to move this model from the Twin Oaks 
model that I guess you were basing this on to where you were in England. Can you tell me about that experience and what led you to actually go and visit this place in Virginia and end up settling there? I think that what, what we didn't do that we needed to do was have in place early on in starting our community in England, have in place the sorts of structures and agreements that you need to be a larger group. If I wanted to be a larger group, we needed to start as if we were a larger group. And we didn't do that. And so we left a lot to be worked out day by day without any agreed policies. And that left a lot of room for um, different interpretations a bit well different visions like you said about mm. your experience i think so we tried initially we tried some of the structures from twin oaks we tried the labor credit system where everybody agrees to work a certain number of hours each week and you write down what you did each day and add it up and we were doing that with like five people in my community in england and we were actually we had to work so hard, we bankrupted the labor credit system. We really, we were pioneers, we were starting the community. We needed to work ridiculously long hours, um, but we didn't want to say that we were going to have to work ridiculously long hours. So we had a work quota of how many hours a week we could do, but we had to do more. And in the end, we threw away the labor, the labor sheets because it, it wasn't working for us. And that led to a, a much looser system that later on, um, led to me leaving. <laughs> sure, That was part of it. And so what are some of the dynamics that you found that were missing in that original attempt that perhaps are present or have a better example of working out where you now live? Oh, yes, that's a hard one to answer, actually. Um, I think partly at Twin Oaks, well, Twin Oaks has been going now for 52 years. So there's a very established expectation of what people will do while living there and what they they won't do and it's most of it is written down in policy so if someone starts to do something that's not what we agreed someone can call them on it and um, we can deal with the situation we can meet and talk with them or they can say oh yes I, you know i shouldn't have done that i won't do that again um so that that works a lot better we're not trying to uh, recreate all our policies every time a new person joins which was part of the difficulty we had with a smaller community in England someone new would come in and we would give them the power to um, without being fully aware of it we gave them the power to ask us to sort of change all our agreements every time so we were constantly reinventing the wheel now when someone joins Twin Oaks they don't get that opportunity you know they're a new member we've got all these people that are already living a certain way and that's the way we want to keep it unless unless a bunch of people agree with the new person that we want to make a change uh, so it's a lot more stable um, at Twin Oaks and that suits me because I'm really looking for a long-term place to live. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that being an important element if you're trying to build a lifestyle around it and a matter of stability um, really has to come from, from within. And like you said, if it's, if it's being questioned or, or being kind of toppled every time a new person joins, that reduces that, that benefit for people who are trying to live a stabler lifestyle. Now... Exactly. Where do you find sort of the balance between what is expected within the communal structure and the amount of personal autonomy and freedom that perhaps either you wanted or you find that you're, you're granted within the structure of the organization? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, like I said, Twin Oaks is a secular community. It doesn't mean nobody can be religious. It means everybody can have their own beliefs. And what's going on inside your head is kind of your business. Uh, and everybody can believe what they like. And likewise, everybody gets their own room and what you, you know, how you furnish, how you arrange your room, the artwork you put on the walls. You can do what you like pretty much apart from you do need to ask the community if you're thinking about making a big hole in the wall and putting in another window or something big like that. But in the day to day way, you can you can do as you like. Um, it's also there's a lot of flexibility about finding your work. I said as we have a labor credit system and everybody has to do a minimum of a certain amount a week but you can pick and choose and, and keep trying different kinds of work until you find a mixture of work types that suit you and so there's a lot more flexibility there than people would have practically anywhere else I think. And if I heard you right at the beginning you mentioned that there was sort of an egalitarian structure can you speak on that a little? Yeah um everybody's work is equally valued an hour of one person's work is valued the same as an hour of another person's work we don't have any wages we're sharing all our money uh, sharing all our income and all our expenses uh, so when someone is washing the dishes they are getting one labor credit per hour for doing that and when someone is um, working in our tofu business making tofu they get one labor credit per hour for that and when someone is um, working in, in the farm in any way, they get one labor credit per hour. So everybody's work is equally valued and everybody has an equal chance to speak up about things they're concerned about and to offer to be uh, in a position of responsibility. Uh, and then what they might get chosen, they might not get chosen, depending if people think their skills are, are right for the job. But everybody has that opportunity. Hmm. And how are larger decisions within the community made within that context? Is it a matter of consensus? Is it a democratic voting process? Or are there, like, what are some of the nuances that kind of help it to work and, and keep people from, I guess, unneeded conflict, I would say? Right, yeah. Um, we don't use consensus. We don't use voting. It's a very decentralized kind of method of making decisions. And most of the decisions that get made are being made by someone and by a member who's a manager of a certain area. So the garden has a manager, the kitchen has a manager, um, taxes has a manager, vehicle maintenance has a manager. There's lots and lots of different managerships. And the manager makes the decisions about that that area. So if you're concerned, if you have concerns about that particular area, you go to the manager and you talk with them. Mm. Um, so that covers most of it. And then we have a group of people who look at the, the big picture, long term kind of decisions, and they're called the planners. And there's usually three of those people. And so they make decisions together about things that are going to affect all of us. And so for people who are listening, who are perhaps attracted to this lifestyle or want to either create or emulate a model like this that has shown to work for a long period of time, uh, what kind of advice would you give them? And, and what are some of the aspects of this lifestyle that, that have kept you in it for such a long time? Okay. Uh, so if someone's interested in finding out more, I would say go to the Twin Oaks website, which is just 
twinoaks.org, O-R-G. Um, there's also the um, Fellowship for Intentional Community, FIC.org. And those places you can find lots of information. Uh, I would say go visit some different kinds of communities. Figure out which bits are important to you, what kind you're looking for. Go visit some, see if it's really the kind you're looking for. Sort of fine tune your um, what you're seeking. Uh, maybe stay a while and work a while at uh, some of these communities and see what what it is that you really want. Uh, the second part of the question: What's kept me there? Um, I find that well, it's politically it's really important to me that people learn to work together better and that we learn to share resources better and are not so wasteful um, with, with resources and um, yeah, electricity and so on. Uh, it's also important to me socially. I really like living with a lot of different people. And, you know, there's someone that I get together with once a week to play Scrabble. And then there's people that I work with. And then there's different people that I sit and have lunch with. And I really like having that mixture without having to kind of make dates and make appointments and go into town and so on. Um, economically, I really like it. It's uh, it's much fairer than a system where people get paid different rates for different jobs. Uh, I'm contributing what I can. I can stay at Twin Oaks till I die, and then I can be buried there, and that's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it's really good to hear because you know, perhaps you've participated or seen enough around from other intentional communities and eco villages that they tend to have quite a high failure rate. I mean, failure put in the sense that like they don't continue for a very long time. Obviously that's yeah. not the only way to gauge success, but um, it, I do find it important to, to look at these examples that have been established for a long time and try and dissect the, the aspects that have worked and kept the communities together. Seeing as it does tend to be a big part of the goal for these communities that, that form. And I also noticed that it's, you know, not only for myself, but a lot of the listeners here and other people in the community, especially with uh, priorities around ecological forms of living and harmony with nature, yeah. that some sort mm -hmm. of healthier community format is at the heart of, of really changing our lifestyles and that doing it individually is, I mean, at the very least inefficient and um, in many times just entirely infeasible. Um, what have you found about the lifestyle there that is really in harmony, not just with the way that the community works, but how do you have an interaction and a, and a healthier relationship with the natural systems that you interact with? Um, big questions. <laughs> uh, one part of living in community for me has been that I've learned to uh, listen to and accept a wide range of opinions that don't necessarily match mine and I've learned to compromise more with other people and their ideas uh, and I've learned to understand um, other people's ideas better than I used to and I do think learning to cooperate better in that way it's a little part of how we might get better world peace because um, if we're just going to be, I think world peace starts at home, really. Uh, if we're going to be fighting and disagreeing a lot, um, it's it's not going to lead to bigger, better things. So I think that that, that is important. 
Uh, I think I've lost track of the rest of the question. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, it's kind of a focus on how you feel that your life is better connected to the natural systems that you interact with. Yeah. Um, well, I'm living on 500 acres with 100 people. I walk out the door in the morning. I sniff the air. I go and have breakfast. Uh, I go to work. I'm walking. I'm not having to get in a car. I'm not living in the city. Um, I can see the trees change color. We talk about how the weather is. Um, and I know where my food comes from. Uh, I know who's cooked it. I know, oh, it's Wednesday. I love Wednesday lunches. The Wednesday lunch cook river. He makes the best beans. Hmm. Um, that sort of thing. <laughs> it's a happy way to be of knowing what's going on around me. Hmm. I really like those observations and uh, I, I echo those priorities that you mentioned. Well, we jumped around between two very different subjects here, but I really appreciate you taking the time. Could you let our listeners know how they can find your book? And if you are, are you offering now any kind of workshops or uh, educational sessions for, for Hoop House Growing? Yeah. So um, the book that Oliver's referring to is my second book, The Year Round Hoop House. And uh, well, you can buy it wherever books are sold, as they say. Uh, my first book is Sustainable Market Farming. You can buy that in the same places. <laughs> I have a website, sustainablemarketfarming.com. And uh, I do a blog post there every week, usually Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, I also sell books through my website, or you can buy them at a, a conference that I'm at. I have an events page on the website that tells you where I'm going to be giving workshops, um, doing one this afternoon about Asian greens. Um, oh, some of my favorites. Yeah, my favorites too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Well, it's such a pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, let's catch up again soon. It was uh, really nice talking to you. Thanks a lot. Nice talking with you, Oliver. Yeah. All right. Take care, Pam. And you too. All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.